Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Radical Response to a Unique Opportunity. They immediately left everything. It's based upon the lectionary text for Sunday, January 23rd, 2011. During Advent, my wife and I enjoyed an adult Sunday school class at our church that watched a DVD series called A History of Christianity, The First 3,000 Years. Written by the Oxford historian Dermot McCulloch and produced by the BBC, the six one-hour episodes explore how an obscure Jewish sect became the world's largest religion. We enjoyed the series so much that we watched it a second time with our kids when they came home from college for Christmas. If you can't read McCulloch's 1,000-page book version of the same title, the DVD series is an excellent alternative. Both the book and the DVD series made me appreciate in new ways the widely divergent ways in which people from vastly different times and places have confessed Jesus as Lord. From the liturgical smells and bells of ancient Syriac Christians to the emotional Pentecostalism of believers in contemporary Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Today, according to David Barrett, author of World Christian Encyclopedia, Christianity has experienced an explosion of what he calls neo-apostolic movements. Distinct from traditional Protestants, in numbering about 400 million Christians in 20,000 movements, neo-apostolic believers reject historical denominationalism and restrictive or overbearing central authority. In Barrett's estimate, they'll constitute 581 million members by the year 2025, 120 million more than all Protestant movements, In two decades, these sectarian movements will outnumber both Orthodox and Protestant Christians and be almost half the size of worldwide Catholics. The Gospel for this week returns us to the humble origins of this global Jesus movement. Matthew writes in chapter 4 that Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Those are the exact words that the wild and woolly John the Baptizer preached in the parched desert of Judea and at the shores of the Jordan River. And in Mark's parallel account, they're also the very first words spoken by Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. To repent, says John Howard Yoder, is not to feel bad, but to think differently. To repent doesn't mean to grovel in self-hatred or pious sorrow. When you repent, you turn around, change directions, choose a different path, or make a radical rupture. Repentance signals an abrupt end to life on autopilot or to business as usual. Whereas we often construe repentance as a religious word with negative connotations, Radical change is exactly what many people long for. The Gospel says that large crowds flocked to Jesus and his message of repentance. 
I suspect this happened because in the ministry of Jesus, his invitation of repentance was connected to his ministry of healing. When Jesus saw Peter and Andrew fishing in the Sea of Galilee, he invited them, come, follow me. Matthew and Mark both dramatized their unequivocal response. At once they left their nets and followed him. Jesus then saw James and John fishing with their father Zebedee and likewise called them. They immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. A year or so later, speaking for the twelve apostles, Peter could even say to Jesus, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. At once, immediately, everything. Why such urgency in abandonment? Why not go home and consider the pros and cons with your family? Won't friends think we're crazy, impulsive, even irresponsible? Won't you regret such a categorical decision? Why not hedge your bet? In the epistle this week, Paul admits that from a human perspective, this call of Jesus to repentance is both foolish and scandalous. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 and 23. Jesus invited Peter, Andrew, James, and John to a radical reorientation because in his own person he said, the kingdom of God has arrived. Jesus both announced and embodied God's reign on earth, right here and right now. There was an unmistakable element of cosmic fulfillment in his preaching, teaching, and healing. The kairos has come, said Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The word kairos denotes a critical juncture, a divine intervention, a special moment. In contrast to mere chronos, or everyday clock time. You mark chronos on your calendar, like the soccer game on Tuesday at 4 p.m. With chronos, you might procrastinate with minimal consequences. Kairos is different. Because kairos denotes a unique opportunity, it invites a radical response, an urgent choice, or a fundamental reorientation. Peter, Andrew, James, and John sensed God's kairos, and so they left everything at once to follow Jesus. Their father, the hired help, the boats, their nets, their livelihoods, everything that was safe, predictable, and familiar. In stark contrast, Jesus lamented that Jerusalem did not recognize the kairos of God's coming to you. Luke 9, 19.44 It's one thing, said Jesus, to predict the signs of the seasons or the patterns of the weather, but quite another to recognize and act upon the signs of the kairos, Matthew 16.3. The smug and secure establishment people often rejected his invitation, 
didn't believe it or chose not to follow and not to hear. A wealthy businessman, for example, went away sad when Jesus invited him, Come, follow me. Mark 10.22 The pagan Ninevites, on the other hand, understood the kairos of God. Much to Jonah's shock and chagrin, these foreigners responded to his preaching. They repented and believed the message about Yahweh. Throughout the Bible, peripheral outsiders who have been marginalized by mainstream insiders connect with Jesus' urgent invitation. The religiously suspect, the ethnic enemy, social outcasts, the economically poor, the morally impure. Matthew describes the large crowds who followed Jesus as people who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics. Matthew 4.24 In the words of Isaiah's poetry for this week from Isaiah chapter 9, which is quoted by Matthew, they were people walking in darkness who were longing for the light. Jesus' call to repentance is an invitation to healing. It asks God to end all that is old in us and to begin something new. The weak and the weary who know their deep needs and respond to this message have much to teach those of us who are the strong and the powerful. And so a favorite prayer of mine from Arsenios in the 5th century helps us to begin a new beginning. Arsenius prayed, My God, do not abandon me. I have done nothing good before thee, but grant me in thy compassion the power to make a start. And now for further reflection. Can you recall a time when you truly repented or a time when you resisted repenting? When have you experienced moments of kairos that interrupted your chronos? Why do the needy respond and the strong often resists the invitation to repentance. And finally, how can we understand repentance as a positive opportunity instead of a negative religious obligation? For books this week, I review Andrew Basevich. The title, Washington Rules, America's Path to Permanent War, New York Metropolitan Books, 2010, 286 pages. <clears throat> Andrew Basevich graduated from West Point. He spent 23 years in the military and later earned a PhD from Princeton. But by 2003, his long-held neoconservative beliefs about the, the benign purposes of American power had so completely crumbled that he now considers them, quote-unquote, preposterous. 
This book is his latest effort to subvert the conventional wisdom that rules in Washington, namely the package of assumptions, habits, and precepts that have defined the tradition of statecraft to which the United States has adhered since the end of World War II. Instead of seeing war as a grievous last resort to be resorted at all costs, we now have the complete militarization of statecraft in the economy, a condition of permanent national security crisis, or what he calls semi-war. The Pentagon has openly embraced what they call a long war. That, they promise, has no foreseeable end and will thus last for many decades. Our American credo, as Bacevich calls it, requires the United States, and only the United States, to lead, save, liberate, and ultimately transform the world. Most people find this self-appointed prerogative both reassuring and benign. To carry out this mission, we've also developed military means of staggering excess to accomplish a sacred trinity of ends. A global military presence, global power projection, and global interventionism. According to Basevich, the credo and the trinity are the rules in Washington. And what rules Washington? They exert influence far beyond mere party affiliation or whoever happens to occupy the White House. In six short chapters, Basevich shows how the credo and the trinity evolved, questions their basic assumptions, explains how and why these rules persist in Washington, argues that these rules are not only imprudent but unsustainable, and then proposes his own view of statecraft so as to legitimate alternatives to the status quo. And Washington, in his view, includes not only legislators and presidents, but also Wall Street financiers, military contractors, lobbyists, putative experts in think tanks, in the media. In other words, all who confess the credo and bow down to the sacred trinity. Beyond the stupendously profligate costs in blood and treasure for permanent war, there were also other costs just as real but harder to measure. Families shattered by loss, veterans bearing the physical and psychological scars of combat, the perpetuation of ponderous bureaucracies subsisting in a climate of secrecy, dissembling an outright deception, the distortions of national priorities as the military-industrial complex siphons off scarce resources, Environmental devastation produced as a byproduct of war in the preparation for war. The evisceration of civic culture that results when a small Praetorian guard shoulders the burden of waging perpetual war. While the great majority of citizens purport to revere its members, even as they ignore or profit from their service. Bashevich actually has little hope that the rules of Washington will change. After all, there have always been nonconformists like William Fulbright in his book The Arrogance of Power, 1966, 
But such prophets, says Bashevich, rarely matter. He's also aware of the charges of romanticism and isolationism. Nonetheless, in his last few pages, he proffers an alternate trinity in which America leads by example rather than by military coercion. If we, were, if we fail to wrestle with the glaring contradiction and hypocrisy of promising peace and prosperity while advocating permanent semi-war, says Basevich, over the horizon a shipwreck of epic proportion awaits us. Andrew Basevich, the title Washington Rules, America's Path to Permanent War. For film this week, I review a documentary called When You're Strange from 2009. Johnny Depp narrates this short 70-minute documentary about The Doors, one of the greatest rock bands of its era and of all time, and certainly one of its edgiest under its frontman Jim Morrison, 1943 to 1971. In many ways, Jim Morrison was The Doors, even though John Densmore, Robbie Krieger, and Ray Manzarek have continued to perform long after Morrison's drug death at the age of 27 in Paris. There are some interesting historical gems in this film, besides Morrison's frenetic stage performances, raging alcoholism, and love for poetry. Morrison couldn't read a note of music and never had any professional training. The song, Light My Fire, was the very first song that Robbie Krieger ever wrote. The band stayed together despite Morrison's antics for less than five years, but still sold 80 million records, and even today sells a million a year. This entire film is made from archival film footage, giving viewers a palpable sense of the social turbulence of those decades of the doors. The title of the film, When You're Strange, from the year 2009. And finally for this week, in keeping with the theme of Jesus' call to repentance, we've posted a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins, 1844 to 1889. The title of the poem, My Own Heart. My own heart, let me have more pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter kind, charitable, not live this tormented mind with this tormented mind tormenting yet. I cast for comfort I can no more get by groping round my comfortless than blind eyes in their dark can day or thirst can find thirsts all in all in all a world of wet. Soul, self, come, poor jack self, I do advise you, jaded, let be. Call off thoughts a while elsewhere. Leave comfort root room. Let joy sighs at God knows when to God knows what. 
whose smiles not wrung see you. Unforeseen times, rather, as skies between pie mountains lights a lovely mile. Gerard Manley Hopkins, My Own Heart. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 23rd, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.